All right, good morning. Hebrews chapter 11 to at the end, actually to chapter 12. Here's where we'll be this morning. <clears throat> Remember this <clears throat> last section, main section of the book of Hebrews, which started in chapter 10, verse 19. Uh, remember, there was a passage there, of course, that made the transition from all the, you know, who Christ is, what he's done, to just kind of funneling in on the point, okay, because of that, we need to trust him. We need to run to him. We, he's our only hope. He's the only uh, option that we have, if you want to say. He is it. And, that, you know, there were three main exhortations there, remember? Draw near, hold fast, and be considering one another, be looking out for one another, all right? That is still kind of the, uh, the, the governing principle through the rest of the book of Hebrews here, uh, those ideas. And then in, toward the end of chapter 10, before chapter 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews exhorted us to remember what God had done, and that, that helps fortify us for the present struggles and for whatever it is we might face in the future. All right? Then he went into the long presentation in chapter 11 about all the past examples of faith, right? Uh, and how people trusted God, even in spite of, and, and again, I mean, you know, we hurried through the chapter, but there's all kinds of. Uh, illustrations there of great difficulties, testings in life, um, and so on. Then, then he, he draws all of that toward the end of chapter 11, basically saying, you know, all those people, they had faith in God, and they kept trusting Him, and they didn't even receive the promise yet. Now, something else has happened. And of course, this is reminiscent of back in chapter 9 uh, and so on where it says, and Christ having come, being come, it says, but the idea is he's arrived. Christ now has arrived. And he's a great high priest, of course. Uh, but he's here. And then verse 40 in chapter 11, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, the writer of Hebrews kind of leaves all those past examples and focuses in on one example. We started looking at this last week, the beginning of chapter 12 here, and it's what in our outline we've just called the, the direct object. I mean, he's the one that really what we're looking at, all right? I mean, it, it's, it's helpful to have others. It's helpful to have other examples of humans who... Uh, went through struggles, sometimes maybe similar struggles, maybe not so much similar in circumstance, but at least in principle. Uh, obviously, that's good, that's great, but ultimately, we're to be looking at Christ. And then that's what this focuses in on here now. So let's do this. Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll jump right back in here in, uh, in chapter 12. There's a particular section here that we want to get to. Uh, in this um, uh, for this morning. So let's just go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. Help us now as we continue looking to Jesus. Help us to truly look to him and consider him. And help us, Father, to uh, you know, just be reassured of what you are doing in our lives and help us uh, to continue in pursuing you, pursuing Christ, and allowing you to work in our lives and grow us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen. All right, in chapter 12, wherefore, all right, drawing that conclusion based on all those past examples, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. There's a whole, a whole host of testimonies of, of people that have you know, witnessed before us, right? Uh, we have that, but he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily, be, be, easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's the main 
idea in this verse, running with patience the race that is set before us. It's interesting he uses kind of that illustrative, uh, you know, idea here of running a race. You know, in a long-term race, I mean, it, it's not over quick. There's, there's struggles, there's, there's uh, difficulties, and there's probably often a need for reassurance of self, right? Self-confidence, okay, I can do this, keep going, keep going. One more step, one more step. I mean, you know, you just uh, you keep going. And it's one thing to run in a, you know, that said, I was thinking some military experience is one thing to run in a crowd, you know, run in a, in a platoon. And, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of motivation in that. Everybody else will run and I'll run. And, and uh, then, you know, sometimes you might have somebody hollering at you and stuff. So that's extra motivation. But to run all by yourself is a whole different thing, you know. So, uh, but you use this illustration of running a race. And then as we're running, notice verse 2, we're to be looking unto Jesus. So our eyes are to be fixed on him. In uh, Philippians, you know, Paul kind of uses the, a similar illustration of running, and he talks about looking at the prize, you know, looking at the finish, the ends, looking at what's in store uh, as a motivation to keep your eyes there. Here he says, looking unto Jesus, and there's no better, no better uh, fixation or focus that we can have in our eyes, in our minds, right? Then the Lord Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who began and the one who completed, perfected, who finished our faith. The faith is literally the idea here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's all about him and it's all because of him. It's all wrapped up in him. It's all about him. All right, um, and, and so this direct object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a lot of, again, a lot of past examples, but he is the example. In fact, so notice as this verse then it, it goes on, all right, because he's our example, look what he's done, right? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, we mentioned last week, in this context, all right, this idea of who for the joy that was set before him, I believe, based on the grammar here, is talking about the idea of instead of, in exchange for, all right? I mean, he, he had... He had a place of glory in heaven before he came to this earth. But he willingly set that aside temporarily. And obviously he knew, you know, the end result. He knew the long game, if you want to say. Uh, but I think this is similar as far as examples here. It's similar to the idea of Moses back in chapter 11 uh, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And just by, way, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this before, but in that, in that verse, it's interesting because it says, esteeming the reproach of Christ... I mean, think about that. Moses, and in Moses' mind, he understood something about Christ. And literally, it's the idea of the Christ, the Messiah. I don't know what all Moses understood about Christ or the Messiah. I don't know what all, a lot of the Old Testament figures, obviously, they did not have, they did not have all the information that we have in all of the Bible, all right? But there was something that God obviously allowed Moses to know, to see, so that Moses understood something about the promise. Remember chapter 11, too, is all about that promise, that promise thread running through there, right? Which the promise came in Christ, and there's still more promises with Israel and so on that God will fulfill through Christ in the future and so on, but he's the promised one, Christ. And Moses, somehow or another, he understood that the reproaches of the Christ were greater treasures than everything he had in Egypt. So in Moses' situation, it wasn't that he was looking you know, at the end as being so much greater than what he had because he had it made, so to speak, from a worldly perspective in his present circumstance. 
But he understood that setting that aside for a present difficulty, ultimately the end result was blessing, but he understood that. And that's similar to in the, in the example of Christ here in Hebrews 12 too, all right? He set aside the glory that he had in exchange for the shame of the cross. I mean, it's unthinkable in reality. It, it's just, it's beyond my ability to even think about why. I mean, you know, and obviously the motivation, according to the Bible, is God's love. I mean, and, and I don't think we can fully comprehend that in this life. The love of God, all right? But it was, but our sin was so serious, is so serious, that it took that extent for God to be able to exercise His love toward us. God is love, yes, but God is holy. Sin had to be dealt with, and it took God doing what He did in Christ in order to, and Christ being obedient to everything that that required of Him as a man, uh, to go through with all of that, all right? But looking unto him, all right, that's, that's the idea here, all right? And then notice again verse, and then, of course, now he's back, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3, notice for consider him. We've seen the word consider several times before in the book of Hebrews, all right? It's, it's been used before. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The, the word consider here is the same idea, uh, if I'm remembering right, as in chapter 10, where it t- told us to consider one another, all right? Same idea, to think about, think on, uh, observe, reflect on, all right? And we're to consider him. That's Christ, of course, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. It's interesting, thinking about the study on Sunday night, all right, with mind, thinking, and so on. And interesting, I've thought about this several times during uh, those lessons, but, you know, the Bible puts a lot of emphasis when it comes to our thoughts and thinking on our heart, not so much, of course, I guess you could say physiologically that happens in your brain, but really it's not just your brain, it's your heart. And your heart is involved in all of that, which, again, obviously stresses the fact that it's more than just data, you know, just like information. There are feelings, there are desires, there are, you know, and ultimately the will, a choice. That's ultimately your thoughts, all right? So anyway, but... He's saying we, we need to consider him and what he went through so that we don't become, you know, if we just focus on ourselves, our situation, we'll become wearied in our minds and we'll want to give up. But if we focus on him and understand all that's involved, then obviously that, that makes a difference. And he says, um, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. And then verse 4, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. All right, so for these people that he's writing to, we can see some hints, obviously, throughout the book, but remember back even, um, trying to remember where it was now, uh, it's in chapter 10, I believe, but, but anyway, the point being is there's reference to them that they had been through some trials, through some difficulties, and so on, but here he reminds them, okay, your trials, you went through trials, but you haven't shed blood for your trials yet. But compared to the example that he's just quoted, Christ, obviously Christ did. All right? So, again, you could think of this in several ways. Obviously, you haven't, you haven't faced all that you could yet, and so it could get worse, maybe you could say. All right? But, uh, again, the whole point of this is he's, he's having them trying to get their attention on Christ, not themselves, not their circumstances, and not the difficulties and so on. But keep our eyes fixed on Christ while we run. Uh, And again, we need to take a long look at Him. Now, uh, we should consider Him so we don't get wearied in our... our, The word minds here, too, is actually the word soul. Uh, Like in English, you would think of the the word psyche is used. You know, that's, that's the word there for mind in this particular instance. 
But uh, so it's more than just, again, more than just thinking. It's really in your heart is your idea, is the idea. Um, but Christ, he strove against sin to the point of bloodshed, obviously. Now, there's a, a, a transition that takes place, although it's not just like a cut and dry transition, because he's still in, in down through at least verse 4 talking about Christ, but in another sense, he's doing it for a reason, because he's also bringing into the picture uh, our relationship to God and God, how God works in our lives as His people. All right, so in this you also see the direction of our faith. And what I mean by this is, all right, Christ is the direct object. He's the one that we're to focus on. He's the one, the object of our faith. But in this life, all right, we have experiences, we, uh, we go through things and so on for the purpose of God directing our faith in our lives, to work in our lives. That's, that's the obvious idea. And this then leads into this passage, which is probably well known to a lot of Christians, about chastening, all right, and how God works in our lives. Now, um, <coughs> excuse me, so we can say very clearly that God is at work in our lives directing our faith. God works so that, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, I think there's a number of different ways to illustrate it, but it's kind of like, you know, as you're going through life, I mean, God uses things and pushes you, prompts you, sometimes He uses people, sometimes He uses circumstances. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's obviously no limit to what God can use and do in our lives, but God, He does things to direct our steps, you know, thinking about Psalm 37, uh, directing our steps so that our way is what God wants, our path, and so on. But a path is made up of steps, all right? So, uh, but God works in our lives in such a way as to direct our faith with, and there's a purpose, there's a goal in that. It's not just haphazard, by chance, whatever. There is certainly a goal that God has in all of that, all right? So while they and we need to focus our minds on Christ, notice verse 5 says, and ye have forgotten the exhortation. Again, it's easy to forget. It's easy to lose focus as we live our lives, all right? So we need to not do that, all right? Although they have endured some difficulties, it hadn't come to the point of blood yet, all right, bloodshed. It could get worse. Not yet is the idea. Have you withstood to the extent of blood, struggling against sin? All right, then he goes into this, into this passage about chastening, and this has to do, in a way, all right, both with Christ and with them, with us, all right? Now, I, I say with Christ in this sense, because it's been talking about this example of Christ, and Christ is the Son of God, all right? God the Father worked in Jesus' life in various ways, all right? And Jesus is, was the perfect example of God's man being faithful, obedient, being directed by God. And he endured many difficulties, trials, testings, right? The Bible says he was tested in all points like as we are, yet without sin, all right? And he endured a lot, even before the time of the cross and so on. But he endured a lot, okay? As a man, he faced those things. And so he's still in the light here as the example that we're to be looking at. But at the same time, the writer is using this passage then to teach us something about us, all right, what God wants to do in our lives. And I, both of these are, are involved here, all right? So he says, you have forgotten the exhortation, verse 5, which speaketh unto you as unto children... 
Then he says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This is a quote uh, from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, I believe uh, it is. I mean, there's many passages in the Bible that we could look at that give us information to the, uh, you know, if you want to say, to the point that God does things in our lives for our good. They may not seem pleasant at the time, but he does things in our lives for a reason, for a purpose, all right? And, and I think there's more than, you know, there, there's, there's a couple different sides of that involved in that, and I think you can see this as a kind of a good illustration with Job, all right? Did Job go through difficulties? Did God have a part in that? Yeah. Did somebody else have a part in that? All right. But the thing is, the the motivation, the purpose from the devil, obviously was far different than the motivation and purpose of God in allowing things to happen to Job that happened to Job. I mean, and in our lives, I think, you know, I'm not saying that you personally are a a target, or me personally, I don't think I'm important enough to be a target of the devil himself. Remember, the devil's limited. He's he's a powerful creature, but he's limited. He's not all-powerful like God, and and he's limited, okay? He has a lot of help. He has a lot of help, all right? And he has help from our flesh and, of course, the world in which we live, all right? But God is involved in every one of our lives directly. And God has purposes in that. And sometimes, as, as the statement goes, good things happen, or bad things happen to good people, so to speak. Well... That's just a fact of life. And there's numerous reasons involved in all of this, all right? I mean, some of the basic things, just, just to throw these out there, I mean, we live in a sin-cursed world. And so there is sin at work in this world. And there are seemingly innocent people who are affected by the sins of others. Not necessarily a direct sin of their own. Okay, now there's no one in this world, okay, let me just put this out there as well, that is perfectly innocent, okay, because we're all sinners, okay, that that doesn't mean that we necessarily deserve things that happen to us, okay, in in some respects. So there is that aspect, we live in a sin-cursed world, and sin is running rampant in this world, and people get affected by that, and then at the same time, sometimes we make bad decisions. All right, and things that happen in our lives then sometimes are a result of those. I mean, and, and things that happen to us are not necessarily just, you know, because of our decisions. They're not necessarily just because of others' decisions. I mean, but at the, the, the thing is, though, and you, you realize Romans 8, 28, all right, that verse, God's able to work, and he, put, he works things together. By the way, it doesn't say in that verse that all things are good. It says God can work all things together for good, okay? So in spite of the nastiness, in spite of the sinfulness, in spite of the the bad things in this life, God is able to make good things come in your life in spite of the bad that you experience, all right? And in spite of the bad around us. God's able to do that, all right? So, I mean, what I'm getting at in this is there, there's a multitude of factors that are involved in all of this. It's not just like one thing, okay? There's a multitude of things that are involved in all of this. Now, the, the look at this kind of idea that Hebrews is giving us is from a little bit different angle, all right? Uh, but it has to do with what we've been talking about there, just bad things in life, okay? Uh, you know, bad experiences, whatever, uh, sometimes they are, might be a result of something we do, a choice we make, 
Sometimes they're not. But at the same time, again, God is still in control of this universe. And God's still in control of your life if you're a child of His. Whether you may be presently yielding control to Him or not, He's still ultimately in control. Okay? Now, we have responsibilities in that too. Okay? Obviously. But, but think of this, all right? So let's, let's look at these next several verses, and there's principles here and so on, and obviously encouragement here for us, all right? So uh, let's do this. Let's uh, turn, if you would, to James chapter 1. I think we got a few minutes here. This is, this is one passage, right? I mean, there's numerous passages in, in the Bible we could look at. James chapter 1, uh, I guess probably starting about verse 2, but read down through verse 12. If, if Pastor will start, we'll just go around the room. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. <clears throat> Where are we at? James 1, 3. Knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. <clears throat> but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect in entire one of nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall, re- shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in he is exalted. But the rich in that he is made low, because as a flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof faileth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. All right, I said stop at 12, but let's, let's read through 15, so let's continue that. <clears throat> Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. In, in that passage, right, there's a lot of things in there, but it gives us some insight into a very similar thing as what Hebrews 12 is talking about here, all right, that things happen to us, and they happen to us for a variety of reasons, but God's reasoning in it is he allows or maybe even causes things in our lives to bring about, and and the word that's really used there in James 1 is patience, all right, endurance. That fits in the scope of Hebrews because Hebrews is about we're to be enduring, right? You know, God wants endurance, steadfastness in our lives, which means obviously that requires that we grow. Okay, and so James 1, you have that. The last several verses then uh, are, are looking at a different angle, but there's a similar word in, in English used there, tempting, temptations, and so on. In, in verses 13 through 15, that's talking about temptation to sin. I mean, and, and then verse 13 makes it clear, God will never tempt you to sin. God doesn't tempt you to sin. God allows tests in your life to grow you, but temptation for sin always comes from the other side, the enemy, all right? And, of course, our flesh is involved in that and so on. But, and it's just like that thing with Job, all right? Job kind of, I mean, it's an interesting picture that we have there, all right? That, that Job, it's like he's instigating this challenge to God. I mean, the, the devil's instigating this challenge to God. You know what? If you don't bless Job so much, you let me t- you know, have my way in his life a little bit, he's going to curse you. That's, that's the gist of it, right? And God says, hmm, you think so, huh? 
and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, and it's like, okay, you're on, you know, so to speak. But the point is, Satan's design in that, he, he had Job's demise in mind. That's what he wanted. God, think about this, though, God, in his omniscience, he knew what the end would be. All right? He allowed things to happen to Job for Job's purification and learning and growth. And in the end, the Bible says that Job was blessed twice as much. I mean, that's kind of hard to imagine in a way, but, you know, uh, so the, the joy in the end for Job was worth the difficulty in the process. Maybe that's similar to childbirth, ladies. I don't know, all right? Uh, in fact, the Lord Jesus even uses that as an example in the Gospels, right? Um, but the point being is there are things that happen in our lives that seem very negative. But God's design is for those negative things to shape and to mold us more positively. Right? And so, again, let's look back at the verses in Hebrews 12. And there's, there's many other passages in, in the New Testament, so on we could look at. Just James was very close here, so that was an easy passage to look at. All right? So, again, he says, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, and again, you can look that up, Hebrew, or, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verses 11 and 12 where he quotes this, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And then adds this statement, For whom the Lord, what's the word? Loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now, this is an interesting concept, again. Now, most of the time, when you hear the word chastening, does a positive or a negative idea come to your mind? I mean, most of the time it seems like it's a negative word, okay? And let me just say, negativity can be involved in it, but it's not necessarily a negative word, even just the idea of chastening, all right, what it is. It's not necessarily punitive, all right? Chastening is done, can be and is done, not necessarily for punishment, but just for growth, right? In fact, if you were to look up, I mean, the word translated chastening here, right, it only occurs several times in the New Testament. One is Ephesians 6, 4. You're familiar with the verse, right? It says, and ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All right? Everybody's familiar with that verse. But the word, same word translated chastening here in Hebrews 12 is the word nurture in that verse. Now, does that sound like a positive or a negative word? All right? Again, but the idea of admonition there is more negative, but nurture and admonition. All right? And then that same word is used again. The only other time outside of Hebrews 12, by the way, is 2 Timothy 3.16. Again, you're familiar with the verse. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That verse tells us that the Scripture is inspired of God and it's for the purposes of. There's four statements there. It says, For doctrine for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. All right, those, those four ideas. One of those four ideas is the word translated chastening here. Which of those four do you think it is? No? No? It's the word instruction. Instruction in righteousness. The, the idea of the word, the word means, it's a word that it, it, it was a word that related to the upbringing of a child, the training. It, it basically has the idea of training, okay? In a way, it's similar to boot camp in the military. It's a time of training. And by the way, it's not necessarily a positive time, but it is, there is a result, a positive result that can come of it, but it's not enjoyable, 
okay, in the midst of it. But training, all right? So in 2 Timothy 3.16, instruction in righteousness, the idea is in training in righteousness, upbringing, training. That's what God is, he's given us the Bible for. Two, and then the next verse, by the way, verse 17 in 2 Timothy 3 says that, or so in other words, for this purpose, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In other words, God's given us his word, and it's his word. He's given us his word so for doctrines, to teach us, all right? For correction, to show us when we're wrong. For reproof, to show us how to make right what's wrong. And for instruction in righteousness, to, to train us, to bring us up in righteousness, all right? That we can be all that we need to be, so we'll be equipped to do all that we need to do for God in this life. That's a paraphrase of those. That's the idea of those verses, all right? So keep that in mind. What I'm trying to do is give you a little different mindset thinking about the word chastening before we look at the passage, all right? It's not necessarily smacking and spanking, and it's instruction. It's upbringing. That's the idea, all right? And so that it, it's, not, it's not necessarily punitive. Okay, that's the point. All right, so he says, the Lord chastens all his children. All right, so chastening is this idea of uh, upbringing, training, instruction, discipline, correction are all involved in that, but the idea is the upbringing, the training. All right, so... Notice the other principles in these verses then. Let's just go through these now. He says, in, quoting again Proverbs 3, he says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Why would he be saying that in this context in Hebrews? Well, obviously because there's some testing, some difficulty go, going on. He's encouraging them to keep their eyes on Jesus and used him as this great example. All, right? All the examples he quoted in Hebrews 11, then Jesus the great example. But now he's... he's, he's turning the, the picture a little bit and basically saying, you know what? Don't faint because God's at work in your life. And God is doing something in your life like a father would do in his son's life. That, that's what he's saying. So that, again, sheds a different light on the circumstances if you think about it that way. All right? He says, don't despise that. Don't look down on it. Don't Take or you could even don't make light of it because it's an important thing what God is doing. And the chastening, the upbringing, the instruction of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Now, obviously, rebuke is kind of negative, but it's still for the same purpose. God loves you enough to not leave you wrong. That's, I mean... Think of the whole essence of salvation, all right? The state of being unsaved is one of negativity. It ends in destruction, and there's a whole lot of wrong involved along the whole process. The whole, the whole state or concept of salvation is, is changing all of that, all right? And the end is life, it's, it's positive, but... Along that way, if you want to say, God is so concerned with your life enough that he doesn't want, even in the practicality of living our lives here, he doesn't want that dross, if I can use it, that word, to stay in your life. He wants to purify that in your life for your good. Now, that involves facing negative things. That involves difficulty. That involves sometimes trouble with people, sometimes trouble with, with uh, whatever in life. I mean, just might be trouble with health. I mean, it, there's all kinds of ways and things that God uses and does and allows. Sometimes, again, it's, it, I, I believe sometimes the enemy's involved in that. God allows him to do things to try to hurt us. God still keeping the parameters of that, all right? And he's not allowed to go further than the permission that he's given. But he has evil designs toward you in doing that. God has loving designs in the whole picture. 
And he allows things and does things because he has a goal for you in mind. All right? And, and when, you, when you think of that this way, the idea of chastening, it, again, it sheds a whole different light on it, I think. Again, it's not just saying that God spanks all of his children. He does. He does. But he also, there, there's far more than that, all right? He doesn't just give you attention for a negative purpose. He gives you attention all the time, all right? It's not just he's spanked you, but he's trying to spend time with you to keep you with him and teach you and show you and train you. I mean, just like in this picture of fathers to do with his son. And you might not understand all of it all the time. I mean, there, there are, were times as a father that, you know, I, I think of Joel in this, right? I mean, everybody understands Joel's favorite word is what? Why? All right, you know? But the point is, sometimes it's just because. I mean, obviously, as parents, we should be able to explain why, okay, and not just say, because I told you so. But, but there are times when it, you know, the right answer is just because. Because that one needs to trust you and understand you have their best interest in heart. And you know what? Again, with us and God, it's the same way. We might not always understand why. Now, James 1, the passage that was read a few minutes ago, it does say there, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who upbraideth not. God's not going to reprimand you for asking why in the right attitude and reason. God liberally gives wisdom to those that ask. That's that, what it's saying in that, I think it's verse 5 there in James 1. But it's not a matter of why... But, you know, God help me to understand, what are you trying to do in my life? I want, I want to grow. I want, I want to be, you know, what you want me to be. Help me. That's a different attitude than the other, you know. Oh, I don't like this. I don't want that. Um, okay, let me get back to here real quick. All right, he says, uh, for whom, in verse 6, still quoting that proverb, he says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son in whom he received. I mean, the word scourging here, you could say, obviously seems punitive. Okay? I mean, it's, it's the word scourge. Same thing that's used, you know, what, what happened to Jesus. He was scourged before the cross. Um, so I, I think you could take the idea here is, God uses all the things of life, and he does enact punitive measures when needed. But notice we all need it, because it says every. <laughs> so we all need it, all right? Uh, but he says in verse 7, if you endure chastening, so if you're going through chastening, God dealeth, God is dealing with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Again, God chastens all his children. Now, again, the word chastening is not necessarily just, it's not just punitive, not negative. God is training all his children. In other words, God's at work in your life. And by the way, this passage is the answer to those that, uh, that want to argue, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say it. Sometimes... It's misunderstood, okay, uh, the, the concept of salvation in the Bible, that salvation is a secure, eternal uh, concept, uh, and then people mistake that and say, well, that means I can do whatever I want to do, and it doesn't matter if I'm not going to lose my salvation. That God never uses salvation as a punishment, a probation, all right? But the fact is, if you're saved, God is going to work in your life, period. God works in the lives of all his children. So 
you can't get away with anything, so to speak. Now, sometimes when we look at things, all right, we have, number one, I mean, we don't know all there is involved in things. We don't know somebody's heart. We don't know, all, you know, there's a whole lot we don't know. So we have to be careful about making judgments and decisions based on what we see. Because we, none of us know the whole thing, and a lot of us never see the whole thing, okay? I mean, so we got to be careful in that. But the point is, if a person saved, God is working in his or her life. We might not see it, we might not think it's happening, but if they're saved, God is working in their heart and life. Now, I can't tell you exactly what he's doing other than he is chastening for the purpose of bringing his image into their lives. And can a Christian resist what God is trying to do in their lives? Yes, and by the way, the Bible teaches a principle about a sin unto death, which is something that has to do with the Christian. And I'm not going to get into all that, obviously, but there, there obviously is a point in which God can take a Christian out of this life if he deems that's the necessary thing to do, right? Because of their rebellion, sin, maybe ruining of a testimony of God's name or something. I mean, there's, there's not necessarily one possibility is what I'm getting at. There is that concept. God can do that. God has done that. There's examples in the Bible, all right? But that's, that's not everybody, obviously, okay? And the point is, we don't see everything, so we might not understand what God is doing in someone's life because we don't know it. But the point is, if a person saved, according to this passage, God is chastening them in their lives, period, end of story, because it tells us that God chastens every son whom he receives. So everybody that's saved, God is at work in his or her life somehow or another, because he doesn't want to leave us like we are. He's trying to help us to grow, to become mature. It's just like you don't, you don't neglect your kids, all right, because you're trying to help them. You want them to grow. You want them to, to be, you know, to be, have a vibrant life and, and so on. But I mean, God wants more, more so. He wants that in our lives. And he does and, and, and allows things in our lives for purposes, all right? Ultimately, it's for his glory and for our good somehow or another. We might not understand it, but for our good and for his glory. And he says, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is there are none. God chastens every son of his. Period. Because we all need it. All right? And sometimes we need punitive measures in our lives, and God will do that as needed. But if ye be without, verse 8, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all God's children, then are ye bastards and not sons. So in other words, if a person, if God's not dealing with a person in their life whatsoever, they're not saved, according to that passage. Now again, we have to be careful when we look at people because we don't know their heart, we don't know what God's doing and, and all of that. But there's a principle there that's Bible and it's true, all right? If, a per, if God's letting a person alone completely, I mean, they're not his. That's a scary thing to think about. Then verse 9, Furthermore, we, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Well, of course. Right? For they verily for a few days chastened us after our own pleasure, after their own pleasure. In other words, doing what they thought was best in our lives. I mean, I think for the most part, even unsaved parents, they, they do with their kids what they think is best for them. They, you know, they may not be saved and but but I think you know, there's a natural affection of of parents for children, okay? Um, and anyway. Um, now, verse 11, note, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Notice righteousness 
in verse 11, and then verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our, what's the word there? Profit. That means for your benefit, for your advantage, right? And then he says that we might be partakers of his what? Holiness. So you could say three words in those verses that are the purpose of, of chastening, of, of just the purpose of things that we go through in life. If you're saved, God has these three things in mind for you. One is your profit. That's generally speaking. God is he's, he's trying to better you. But there's two words that get real specific. One in verse 10 and one in verse 11. Yes. Holiness and righteousness. That's what God is trying to develop in our lives. Holiness and righteousness. Remember, and it's interesting that that, this word chastening is used in this context, right? Remember back 2 Timothy 3.16? Instruction in righteousness. I mean, same concept. Here just goes into detail about this, but uh, that's what God's after in our lives. And we got to quit here. But then, okay, the next number of verses get into some specific just application of duties as Christians in our lives. And we'll look more about those. There's a warning passage at the end of chapter 12, and then chapter 13 gets into uh, some duties in our lives as Christians relating, I think, more to a congregational setting. And again, we'll, we'll look at those as we get to them, but we're getting near uh, the end of, of the book of Hebrews here. But keep in mind, this, this is an important passage here. It's, it, I mean, God loves his children, obviously. God doesn't let his children alone. He might give you some space, but he's not going to let you alone. He is at work in your life if you're saved. And he's doing it for a reason, because he wants to bring about righteousness and holiness in your life to profit you. Same thing is said in Romans 8.28, just worded differently. And there the point is to conform us to the image of Christ. Same idea. That's what God's up to in our lives as believers. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the fact that you love your children. You care about us, and you work in our lives. Even sometimes when we might seemingly not want you to, but you do, and we're thankful for that. Help us to be what we ought to be for you. In Jesus' name, amen.